Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would please, or scroll in your Bible app to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis and chapter 4. It is a joy to serve on uh, the board of New Hope Center and having done so for a little over six years now. And also a joy to see how many different Grace Fellowship people that God has used in that ministry over the years. Not the least of which is its founding by a wonderful, wonderful sister in the Lord who goes to the Independence Campus, Linda Gray, who founded New Hope Center many, many, many years ago. And to see what God has done through that ministry, through her willingness to do that, her sacrificial service to the community, but also to the Lord, it's just amazing to see it now functioning with multiple locations throughout uh, the area and ministering to different people. And so we're very, very grateful to be able to support such a ministry, but also to be able to be the actual hands and feet that serve in that ministry. And so thank you for doing so. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for praying. We're excited for what the Lord has for us in the days ahead as we advocate for the sanctity of human life. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be gathered here before you. Uh, we are grateful to be able to worship you on this particular Lord's Day, to hear from your very word. We count that as no 
small thing. We pray, Lord, that you would do for us what you've done for us so many times, what you do for your church throughout the world each and every time we gather before you. Lord, would you help us to discern your word? Would you speak to us through your word? Would you impact our hearts and our minds and our life by the preaching and the reading and the hearing of your word for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What we just read in Genesis chapter 4 doesn't come to us in a vacuum. Uh, and while I don't want to work through the first three chapters of Genesis because we don't really have time, I do want to ask you to just go back a few verses in Genesis chapter 3 to help us set, get, get a little bit of the background, but actually what I'm really going for here is to help us set a, a mood, if you will, that we might better understand what's going on here. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, beginning in verse 23. So this is after the fall, after the Lord has pronounced a curse on the serpent, a curse on the man, a curse on the woman. And in verse 23, it says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And then our text begins in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. If there's a sadder portion of scripture, I don't know it. If there's a sadder portion of literature throughout all of history, I don't know it. Watching what God had done throughout the first two chapters of Genesis, the perfect fellowship that he desired to have with Adam, with Eve, and then seeing Adam and Eve transgress the Lord and that relationship broken. Understanding that God created Adam and Eve in his very image and likeness. And then seeing that image be marred because of the sinful choice of Adam and Eve is one of the saddest things Ever. And I think the saddest thing that you can ever see throughout all of Scripture. It's not exactly like this, but it's not altogether uncommon from a parent kicking out their children and changing the locks because circumstances have changed. Some of you know that pain. On a very different level, this is, what, this is similar to what happened at the end of Genesis 3. God makes man and woman, Adam and Eve... But they mar the image of God and would no longer be able to have the relationship with God they were intended to have. You know what that's like if you've been through something like that with a family member. You know what it's like if you've been through something like that with children. To have a simultaneous resolve knowing you're doing that which is best, but to also be simultaneously brokenhearted. I don't think God rejoiced as he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. I don't think God rejoiced as he placed a cherubim to guard Eden with a flaming sword, but he did it nonetheless because it was the right thing to do. But he didn't drive them out without hope. He made a promise to them. Even amidst pronouncing the curse in Genesis chapter 3, God shows he's a God of righteous justice, but also a God of mercy and grace. Look at Genesis 3 and verse 15. As God is talking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his 
heel. He shall bruise your head. While pronouncing judgment, a curse on the serpent, he makes a promise, God himself, to mankind. This is known as the Protevangelion or the Proto-Gospel or the First Gospel. A message of hope and good news that the Lord announces in the same chapter as the fall that necessitated it. And then continues to make it clearer and clearer and clearer as you go through the scriptures. And so our text today begins in chapter 4 and verse 1. And Adam and Eve uh, are the only two people in the world. And we're told that Adam knew Eve. And that doesn't mean that Adam just kind of knew who Eve was. It literally means Adam was intimate with his wife. They had sex. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Literally, I have had a male child with Lord's help. She's happy. She, she gives glory to God. Happiness surrounding new life is something that exists literally from the very beginning of redemptive history. Even amidst sadness and grief over having been exiled from Eden, she has joy because the Lord has blessed her with a child. Plus, recall the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The promise that God made that he would make this right, that, that, that Satan's head would be bruised, would be crushed by, through Eve's offspring. And so the fact that Eve has offspring is a reminder that God is faithful. He's keeping his promise. It's not that God said that and then Eve was barren. No, God was faithful and right and true to his word. He keeps his promise every time. New life coming into the world means hope for tomorrow. And so in verse 2, we see that uh, she also bore his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, that's a shepherd. And Cain was a worker of the ground, a farmer, a gardener, what have you. Uh, Verses 3 and 4 show that Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brings an offering of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard, literally in the Hebrew, gazed upon Abel and his offering, the person And the act of worship, the person and the action. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, verse 5. But for Cain, the person, and his offering, his act of worship, he had no regard. He did not gaze upon it. And Cain's response in verse 5 is anger. It's literally furious in the Hebrew. Burning with anger and his face And that doesn't mean just he just kind of was like, oh, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. His face fell means he looked despondent. He was utterly hopeless. And so you have this mixture of him being furious, not just a little annoyed. Man, I thought he would have liked it. Literally furious, burning with anger, combined with despondency, hopelessness, utterly despondent. And the Lord talks to Cain and calls him what he is. Why are you angry? Why is your face falling? Why are you angry? Why are you hopeless? If you do well, verse 7, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. And so God talks to Cain and he says, why are you feeling this way? Basically, hey, be careful. Be careful. Why are you feeling this way? Why have you responded this way to me? And then gives him a hopeful warning. You can do well. You ought to do well. You ought to rule over your sin. But if not, be careful. He makes it very personal and says, sin is crouching at the door for you. It's not far off, Cain. This is not 
far off from you. It's there. It's coming. It's knocking. But you must rule over it. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. What he said, we don't know. Pretty sure it was probably deceitful. Right? I mean, I don't think it's too much to read into the text to say that he didn't say, can we go in the field? I'd like to end your life. Just take a little walk with me. We'll go this way. I don't think that's what he said. Speaks to his brother. Gets him in the field. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Ended his life. It did not take long after the fall for murder to be part of redemptive history. Which brings us to our first point today. And there's a sermon outline, by the way, available to you at graceky.org if you'd like to follow along. Point number one. You need to remember that God is the author of life. So we can't write the final chapter for ourselves or anyone else. God is the author of life, specifically Jesus. And that's not a pithy name that this pastor came up with as he was putting together his sermon because he's preaching on the sanctity of human life. So let's call him the author of life. It fits so well. No, God gave him that name as he inspired Luke to write what he did in Acts chapter 3 and verse 15. When he says, and you, he's quoting what was being preached at the time by Peter. And you killed the author of life, speaking of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. God is the author of life from the very beginning, from longer than we knew that life exists. It's interesting if you look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, the wording there. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she what? Conceived and bore Cain. Conception and birth. Two separate events. Conception and birth. And God inspires Moses, who wrote Genesis, who wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God inspires Moses, include both of these things, that she conceived and gave birth. Record the conception and the birth. And it's not just here either. Uh, Genesis 3 and verse 17 says Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Genesis 16 and verse 4 says, and he, Abram, went into Hagar and she conceived. Genesis 21 and verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Genesis 25 verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Check out Leah. Genesis 29, verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son. That's Reuben. Next verse, verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son. That's Simeon. Next verse, verse 34, and she conceived and bore a son. That's Levi. I'm not done. Next verse, verse 35, and she conceived and bore again a son. That's Judah. Wow, Leah. A lot of conceiving. The Hebrew word for conceived is used 42 times in the the Old Testament. 20 of them take place in the book of Genesis alone. A lot of conceiving going on in an empty world. Why is this important to note? 
I think it's important to note that God calls attention to life before we have the ability to call attention to life. Does that make sense? God calls attention to life before we have the ability to call attention to life. It's not uncommon, as you can see, for God to call attention to life before we even know it exists. Birth we know, right? Like when someone's giving birth to a baby, no one in the room is confused as to what's going on. And so I didn't even notice the screaming and the pain and the uh, new baby coming, entering into the world, screaming into the world. Everybody knows when someone is giving birth when they're in the room. Not a mystery. Pregnancy we know too, right? There's some outward signs that accompany pregnancy while someone is carrying a baby in their womb. Conception? Only God knows. Nowadays, we have the means to know sooner than ever before, right? You heard uh, Karen Klass, the executive director of New Hope Center, talk to you about the importance of ultrasound technology. We're certainly grateful. We know way sooner than people used to know. We still don't know as soon as God knows. And so when God says she conceived multiple times throughout the scripture, that's not because God saw an ultrasound and realized, oh, conception has occurred. That's because God caused life to be made in the womb of a woman and acknowledges it right from the beginning, acknowledges it earlier than you or I will ever have the ability to acknowledge it because we don't know it happens as early as God does. Now, when it comes to the murder of the unborn, it's an atrocity because it's a helpless little baby whose life is being ended at the hand of another and is therefore being murdered. That's not me being extra bold. That's not me trying to come out swinging. That's me calling it what it is. But the fact that it's a baby that is murdered within the womb is actually secondary to the fact That murder, regardless of whether you're murdering a baby in the womb or euthanizing an elderly person or shooting someone in cold blood or even taking one's own life, murder is sin secondarily because of what it does to the victim, but primarily because it's an affront to God who decides our length of days. He is the author of life. Does that make sense? And we need to be careful that we remember that that that's why murder is wrong. Because sometimes we could say, yes, but it's extra wrong because of the age of the baby. And then actually we sound, we who are pro-life, you realize you actually sound a little bit more like the other side. Because we're ascribing value to a person based on age. We're just starting from the other end. And so primarily the reason that abortion and all murder is wrong is because it's an affront against a holy God who is the author of life. The sin of murder is as if one goes to Christ, whom the Bible calls the author of life in Acts chapter 3, and seeks to rip the pen out of his holy hand so one can write their own ending to a story they have absolutely no right to rewrite according to their own desires. That's why we see an immediate response from God in Genesis chapter 4, regardless of the age of the victim. It's the fact that someone has taken it upon themselves to decide that someone's life should end. Now you might say, but Peter, this is, you're talking about the sanctity of human life? This is a very non-traditional text to talk about the sanctity of human life. Like there's tons of 
There's tons of other texts you could have chosen. Why did you choose this text? I'm glad you asked. Here's why. I think many people look at people or think of people who have had an abortion and think, how could that have happened? How could they do that? Now, that question can be asked in a variety of ways. I'll highlight at least two. Uh, One way it can be asked is one of self-righteousness, as if one is turning up one's nose at someone else because you've never done such a thing. How could they do that? How could they do, what could ever cross their, how could they ever think that would be right? How could they ever choose to do, what, how did they get from here to there? How could they do that? You know, we're going through the gospel of Luke in our sermon series, which we've taken a break from today. But in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about two men who went into the temple to pray. A tax collector and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee prays by reading God his resume of all the religious things he does, which impresses God like not at all. Talks about the fact that he fasts. Talks about the facts that he tithes. All that jazz. And then says, literally says, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. Unbelievable self-righteousness. How could he collect tax? How could he do that? But the tax collector simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Sometimes if someone says, how could they do that when it comes to abortion? They're not really asking a question as much as they're expressing a statement. They're not really looking for information. It's not an honest question. They're expressing their self-righteous disgust with the sin of someone else more than they are disgusted with the sin of themselves. Now, this is probably as good a time as any for me to call to your attention a statistical fact. If you're hearing this message at one of our campuses, you need to know that you are sitting among post-abortive women and men. Right now, you are sitting among post-abortive women and men. And when I say post-abortive men, I mean men who in some way were complicit in an abortion. Let me try to make this a little more personal or a little more realistic based on statistics. And I think I know our church fairly well. If you're hearing this message at one of our campuses, you need to know that you're likely statistically sitting COVID, within, call it 15, 20 feet. You're likely sitting within 15 or 20 feet of a post-abortive woman or man. If you're watching online or listening to this message, you need to know that you know post-abortive women and men. And you might say, no, I don't. And I say, yes, you do. Uh, Yes, yes, you do. That's why talking about these things in a callous, self-righteous way is ungodly and injurious. It injures people. And it injures your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to balance the fact that we care very much about the unborn. We care very much about this atrocity that happens within our lives, but we also care 
very much about our brothers and sisters because we are what? We are family. And you say, that's, that's really hard to do. I say, yeah, I know, welcome to life. Like, the tensions in life are just, like, take a number, right? That's really hard to do for me to be passionate in one area, but then for me to become passionate in another area. True. But it's a tension we lean into for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. We are family. How could they do that? Now, the question isn't always asked in a self-righteous way. Sometimes it's asked genuinely. How, How could someone get to the point? What circumstances surrounded somebody? What were they thinking? How could they get to the point where they would choose to do that? What must happen in someone's mind or heart that they would consider this to be the better choice or the better option? I was a pastor Three weeks to the day on 9-11, September 11th, 2001. Baptism by fire, no pun intended. When pastoring in New York City, the world was falling apart. I remember thinking, as I watched on the news, as people jumped out of a burning skyscraper a quarter mile high, what must it have been like inside the building that jumping to certain death was the better option. It's, it's similar, to, right? You see the, the similarities. What must it be like that choosing this would be the better option to someone? You might look at the text today and look at Cain and say, how could he do that? Murder his brother in a field because God didn't accept his offering? That's crazy. Cain, you're right? The answer is no. Like, like, why would somebody do that? The Lord didn't accept you. Just try again. God himself told you, try again. Like, you, you can do well. You can rule over this. He didn't banish you. He didn't judge you. He didn't condemn you. He just didn't accept your offering, but then came back to you with hope. And yet you chose a different option and murdered your brother. That's crazy. But the answer is in the text. He was angry and his face had fallen. He was angry and he was despondent, utterly hopeless. And unchecked anger and hopelessness leads people to do unimaginable things as our passions take over our minds, our hearts, and rearrange our values and our ideals. And before we know it, we're being tempted to think things, to say things, to do things we never thought we would. And the more angry and despondent someone is, the more likely they are to succumb to these temptations. The answer as to why Cain did what he did, that's not a mystery. Cain did what he did because he was angry and utterly hopeless. Angry at God, angry about his circumstances, and utterly hopeless, utterly despondent, felt he had nothing else he could do. What does that have to do with us? It wasn't long ago, only last summer, when we saw people crowd the streets in cities all over our country, rioting, looting, injuring others, murdering others, and ruining property that doesn't belong to them, injuring people that they had no right to injure, and taking lives of people they had no right to take. We look at these things and we say, how can they do that? It's wrong, top to bottom, inside and out, in every way, shape, and form. 
unchecked anger, utter despondency. Unchecked anger and unbelievable hopelessness drives people to do things that are unbelievably sinful and heinous in the eyes of the Lord. Just a little over a month ago, we watched our own country's capital attacked by its citizens. Human life was lost, property damaged. We who aren't there look in disbelief and say, "What? how have we come to this place as a country? How can they do that? Uh, violence as a means to an end in this fashion is wrong. Top to bottom, inside and out, in every way, shape, and form. Unchecked anger... Utter despondency. Anger and despondency. Which brings me to my second point. You need to realize that you're no different than murderous Cain if you're characterized by anger and despondency. You're no different than murderous Cain if you are characterized by anger and despondency. God expects his people to rule over anger and despondency. That's what he gives what I called a hopeful warning in Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, right? Take a look at the text, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? The answer is yes. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's going to get you. But then he comes back and ends with hope. But you must rule over it. You can do it. If God calls you to it, he'll bring you through it. God's commands assume God's enablement. You must rule over it. God expects his people to rule over anger and despondency. There's there's hope for you, Cain. If you do well, won't you be accepted? But if you don't, look out. It's it's, It's right there. Sin is knocking. It's crouching at the door. It's right there, bro. You gotta rule over it. You you can't be driven by your passions, Cain. You can't be ruled by your appetites. Your circumstances can't govern you. Your emotions can't drive you. If you don't surrender them to God, now you will be the one who tries to be the one whose image you bear. If you don't surrender them to God, you will forget that you are a creature and start taking on the role of the creator and you will do incredibly sinful things. Rule over it, Cain. You got this. Well, you don't have this, but I'm going to enable you to have this. We can rule over this together. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We recall in James chapter 4, it's in your outline, verses 1 and following, what we're told. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you what? You Murder. You covet and can obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Right there in in James chapter 4, you desire and do not have, so you murder. So that's a stretch, Jimmy. It's not. It's not. We recall what our Lord and Savior tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? When he says that when you hate your brother, it's the same thing as 
murdering him. It comes from the same heart. It acts differently, but it comes from the same heart. We look at it differently. We go, yeah, but it's a little different. And God's like, it's so not different. These actions are a result of what goes on in our heart. Cain acted outwardly to display what was going on inwardly. He's actually unbelievably consistent. Which brings me to our third point. You need to be aware of a callous, indifferent attitude towards victims of violence, suffering, and death. A callous, indifferent attitude towards victims of violence, suffering, and death. The Lord approaches Cain in the very next verse after he murdered him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Show of hands, how many of you are pretty sure God like so knew what happened? Right? So he's not gathering information. But calling Cain's attention. Cain. Your brother. Abel. Where is he? I Say it. I want to hear you say it, Cain. Where is he? Acknowledge what has happened. Where is he? But Cain's response is, I do not know. What, am I my brother's keeper? To plan words. Am I the, oh, am I the shepherd's shepherd? Am I supposed to corral him in with others? Am I the guardian's guardian? And am I my brother's keeper? And God's response to Cain is what? What have you done? Oh, oh my. What a contrast there, right? Between a callous, indifferent Cain, a liar. Where is, Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain says, I don't know. True or false? False. Cain's a much more hardened sinner than his father, Adam. You know that, right? At least Adam and Eve had to be persuaded to sin. Cain couldn't be dissuaded from sinning, not even from God himself. Adam blame shifted, but he didn't lie. Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of her fault. Her gave it to me, me. Cain straight up lied to the face of God as he talks to him. Where is Abel, your brother? Oh, no. And then makes a joke. What, am I my, am I my brother's keeper? Oh, I'm sorry, God. Am I supposed to be watching after him? Silly me. Because I thought he was a shepherd. We need to be careful of a callous, indifferent attitude that we have or might have towards victims of violence, suffering, and death. This is what happens when a culture discusses abortion as if it's merely one of many policy decisions. So much to do, so little time. What might the administration do? I don't know. So much, am I right? 
It's a culture that looks at this as just a, it's a voting base of people. They're united by one thing. One thing unites people. One thing unites Catholics and evangelicals. One thing unites the South. It's, it's, it's the unborn. It's just, just a voting issue. It's people who have become so used to hearing about death. Death by the hundreds, death by the thousands, death by the hundreds of thousands. In the case of abortion, the murder of the unborn, death by the millions. That we in our own hearts and minds become unaffected, unaltered, unmoved by death. Perhaps no more than ever before in our lifetime have we seen and heard of more death in our news feeds than over the past 12 months. Just used to it. Just used to it. What's the death toll today? Oh. All right. Well, that's only in certain number. Yeah, but how old were they? Do we realize that over the past 12 months, hundreds of thousands more people have died than have died in previous years in our country? Uh, Yeah, but that's not really a COVID death. I didn't say COVID death, bro. Calm down. I'm just saying year over year, do we care at all? Are we saddened? Are we at all moved? By a rise in death. Or does it just drive us to discuss policy? Does death matter at all anymore? You say, yeah, but it matters for the unborn. But if someone's like 90 and they're already close to dying and they die anyway, I mean, does that really matter? I'm just saying you sound exactly like the person who's like, yeah, but the person's like, I mean, it's just a fertilized egg. Like, they haven't even breached life yet. Does it really matter if we just flush them? God doesn't assign value to life based on age. And so death is sad. Death always reminds us of the fall. Death always should bring about in our minds and in our hearts the attitude of God who's, oh, what has happened? What have you, what have you done, Cain? We can't have this callous, indifferent attitude. It's just a news article. It's just a, just a bunch of people dying. Just a bunch of people dying. And I just want to call to your attention that the line between anger and indifference is unbelievably fine. It's not that I don't care. It's just that I'm angry. Man, that sounds the same as the guy who just says I don't care. In fact, it's easier to be angry about it. I believe Satan would love nothing more than for you to be angry. I think Satan has a blast as the people of God respond to things in our day and age through anger. And you know why? I think because Satan knows his Bible better than we do and knows that the people of God aren't effective for the kingdom of God when anger is their motivation. And that's not my opinion. That's James chapter 1 and verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I think Satan is just like, awesome. This is so great. 
This is, I'm actually going to move less because you guys are just so, you're just so angry and despondent. You're going to be fruitless. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You do you, boo-boo. You be as angry as you can about all of these things. It doesn't matter. The more you are, the more stalled you'll be when it comes to your movement for the kingdom of God. Watch the angriest people in life and see how fruitful they are when it comes to advocating for the things of God. Take an evangelist who is preaching the gospel boldly. Mix in a little anger, a little disgust at the person that he or she is preaching to or sharing with. Fruitless. Fruitless for the kingdom of God. See if angry, riding activists really stand for the oppressed that they say they're standing for, or if their anger just drives them to call for others to be oppressed instead of them. See if angry citizens really make gains for the good of their country, or if they just surround themselves by other angry people so they could be angry together because misery loves company. The wrath of man, the anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. Nothing will stall ministry for the kingdom of God more than anger. Talk to someone who's post-abortive. No two people are alike. But when they explain to you the circumstances they found themselves in at the time and why they ultimately decided to end the life of a preborn child, I'd bet my salary that in some way the common denominator you'll find among people you talk to is unbelievable anger at circumstances. An unbelievable despondency. I didn't think I had another choice. I thought this was the best option. That's what took over Cain's life and led him to do what he did in killing Abel. Angry at his circumstances, therefore angry at God. Even though God himself told Cain he could do well, anger spoke louder to him than God. Hopelessness spoke louder to Cain than God did. He listened to his heart instead of his God and was hopeless and succumbed to his Passions. Look at the riders. Whether they're in the streets over the summer or at the Capitol in the winter, one thing unites both groups. Overwhelmed with anger and despondency. Just utter hopelessness. But let's stop looking at them. What about you? Look back on your own life. Recall a time when you were seething with anger or buried under the paralyzing weight of despondency, not having a hope in the world. If you look at the choices you made during that season of your life, you're probably not terribly proud of them. I bet you'd do something different if you could do it over again now. If you had a choice to go back at that time and do something over again, you'd talk to your child differently. You'd go back and speak differently to that person you're at odds with. You wouldn't have called your husband the name you did. You wouldn't have maligned. You wouldn't have slandered. You wouldn't have gossiped. You would have done things differently if you had the opportunity. Maybe you agree with me and you're like, checkmate, bro. You're right. If I had to do it over, I would do it completely differently. I would have spoken differently. I would have acted differently. I wouldn't have given into my seething anger, my crippling hopelessness, and I wouldn't have punched the wall. I, I wouldn't have cursed her out. I, and, and, and maybe you said, I wouldn't have taken the life of an unborn child. Now what, pastor? I can't click undo. My life doesn't have a rewind button. And do you see where we find ourselves? Exactly where Cain was. 
approached by God who knows what he did. And what do we see? God doesn't kill Cain. Could have. Had every right in the world to. He's God. God also doesn't raise Abel from the dead. So he doesn't change the circumstances, doesn't make the circumstances right. But he shows Cain mercy, grace, love, and protection, which leads us to our final point. You'll most effectively advocate for the sanctity of human life if gospel transformation, heart transformation, is your primary motivation. God righteously judges Cain, but also protects him. Right? Cain is said, I, this punishment is more than I can bear. They're going to kill me. He's still having a pity party. And then God doesn't just say, oh, just shut up. <clears throat> Call down lightning from heaven. Just say, you know what? Plan, new plan. <clears throat> we'll just wipe you out. I've smite you. Smited? Smote? Smote. Killed. And Cain said, you know, everyone, they're just going to kill me. I'm going to wander around like a vagabond. I have nothing else to do. I can't believe it. You know, he's not sorry for his sin at all. Like, I hope you didn't catch, I hope you caught that. He's not sorry for his sin. He's like, this is more than I can bear. You've cast me out of your presence. I don't know what's going to happen. When anybody sees me, they're going to kill me. And God doesn't say, shut up. But God comes to him and says, not so. No, 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 no. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. Dying to know what that mark was, right? Do not kill. I, I don't know. The Lord put a mark on, but the bottom line is he's like, you're marked. You're mine. I'm watching out for you. I judge, but I still love. The same thing he did for Cain's parents in the garden. Made loincloths for them, right? Take off those fig leaves. Put on something nice for crying out loud. Those have got to itch. Still cares, judges and cares, judges and cares. And God is just, he calls sin what it is, but he also rescues sinners from the guilt and paralyzing shame of their past and gives them a mark, one that protects them from hopelessness and shame. Christ saves sinners from being identified with things in their past they can never change and gives them a mark on their hearts and their minds through the gospel, a crimson red mark of Christ's blood shed for sinners that blots out the marks and scars we bear from even the darkest sins in our lives. And when you say, this is more than I can bear, I'll wander, I'll wander around aimlessly in guilt and shame for all my days, God says to you what he said to Cain, not so, not so. I'll protect you. I'll protect you from you and the times you forget who you are in me. My truth will protect you from the enemy who roams about seeking whom he may devour. The enemy who comes to you and accuses you by saying, you know what you did. I know what you did and God knows what you did. So you can respond to him and say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You know what I've done. I know what I've done. God knows what I've done. And he knew that when he sent his son to die on the cross for me because he loves me the same. He knows all that and loves me anyway. Anger and despondency will never win the day for the Lord, but hope changes everything. Hope changes everything. That's actually the motto at New Hope Centers. Hope changes everything because it does. 
When someone has hope and can see past their circumstances, it changes everything. When somebody realizes they're not alone in this world, in their circumstances, but they have a God who knows and loves sinners, hope changes everything. And that's why I think you'll most effectively advocate for the sanctity of human life from the womb to the tomb if what's motivating you is not policy, but is heart transformation. Seeing somebody's heart change, seeing somebody's values change, seeing somebody's mind change by the gospel, by the truth of scripture so that they might make better choices for themselves and for others. People have asked me recently, am I really discouraged with the way that the recent election went when it comes to the sanctity of human life for what that's going to mean downstream? I'm certainly not excited about it. I'm not as discouraged because I never personally was super excited about what Washington might be able to do. Because I think they're just stuck and I think there's a variety of reasons. I'll vote as best I can to put people in place that I believe will have some semblance of biblical values when it comes to policy. But understand, I, my hope is not in them. I'm doing what I think to be right, but I don't go skipping out of the voting booth saying, oh, now all of a sudden it's all going to be better. I'd love to be pleasantly surprised. Would love to be, well, rejoice if I'm pleasantly surprised. But I really don't have hope in that system, in our government. 1973, Roe v. Wade was decided by a conservative court. Aren't you excited that there's a conservative majority? Uh, Ish. Mildly. Do you realize since Roe v. Wade, pro-life presidents have appointed 12 Supreme Court justices? Pro-choice presidents have appointed four. Do you realize that for 49 out of the last 50 years, conservative pro-lifers have had a majority on the Supreme Court? Fat lot of good it's done. I'm not putting my hope and trust in Washington or any president or any politician to do anything more than slightly move the needle in one direction or another. I'll still vote pro-life every chance I get, but I don't skip out saying, now it's going to happen, now it's going to work. I believe actual lives, actual lives are saved when lives are changed. Lives are saved when lives are changed. And that's why I say you'll most effectively advocate for life if gospel transformation, heart transformation, changed hearts and minds is your primary motivation. Washington can change a law, but it won't change a heart. It can't change a heart. The law doesn't save, the law doesn't give life or give hope. You think Cain killed Abel because he didn't know that it was wrong? If only he had the law, he wouldn't have done it. Oh, right. Because lots of people, as they go into from state to state, consider, wait, what are the laws of this state? Do I want to break the law here? I should probably move over here, break the law over here. That's not how people's hearts work. The law doesn't save. The law doesn't change lives. But God does. You'll most effectively advocate for the sanctity of human life for all people in every circumstances if gospel transformation is your primary motivation. Your vote is a voice, but don't forget that your voice is a voice. You have a voice that can pray. 
You have a voice that can advocate. You have a voice that can say to someone else, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and evermore is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I'm free. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Not me, but through Christ who is in me and saved me and helped me and can do the same for a sinner like you. Don't buy into the rhetoric that I see among lots of conservative Christians now that they're kind of sick of people saying that the gospel is of first importance when it comes to these things. Translation, they don't really like 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and following. It kind of gets in their way. They want to see short-term gains now. What are we going to do now? And chances are, do you know what they, have, what they sound like? They sound pretty angry and pretty hopeless. And they sound more like Cain than they do like Jesus. I'm telling you that you can't imagine what planting a seed does to somebody who hears it and then thinks of it later and comes to a realization that they're in a position that reflects back on something that you said, but they don't see you anymore. But somebody else comes along and plants another seed and somebody else gave them a gospel tract and somebody else gave them a Bible. And then somebody invited them to church because it's Easter and why don't you go to church? And then all of a sudden that person is having different thoughts and different things on their minds. And all of a sudden they have a network of people maybe that they can lean to and look to when they're in a difficult situation and they find themselves with an unplanned pregnancy and they say, what can I do? And instead of just going to themselves and wrestling with options that they find, they go to somebody who actually planted a seed. Hey, you had hope. I'm in trouble. Here's what I think I should do. And you can say, let me help. I have more confidence in you advocating for the sanctity of human life on every level if your motivation is gospel transformation than I do in any politician. And that's because your lives have been changed by the gospel and not by policy. And what that can do in the lives of other people is unbelievably powerful and life-changing. To a world who says, I have no hope. And you can look at them and say the words of God in our text today. Not so. God, we come to you and we're excited that you have changed our lives, that you've given us life, that you've given us hope. And we pray, Lord, that you would move in us and among us to ensure that we are not a callous people and indifferent people, but that we care about the things that you care about. Realign our values. Realign our hearts where we need it. Change our minds. Give us hope where we've lost it so that we might give hope to others. And do it for your glory. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.